Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please open them for the last time to the book of Genesis. Not that it's the last time I hope you ever open to the book of Genesis, but the last time in our study through this book. Here we are. It's the end of a long journey, and uh, this, this journey has taken us uh, a long time. We haven't gone straight through the book of Genesis. We've walked through this book in fits and starts. We started in chapter 1 back in, the, in February of 2016, nearly five years ago. Our intention at that time was to just walk through the first 11 chapters, uh, which really do stand on their own as the first section of the book of Genesis. And that that took us five months to get through the first 11 chapters. After that, we took a break for about three years and walked through the book of Romans and a few other things. And then in the fall of 2019, about a year and a half ago, we picked back up our study of the book of Genesis in chapter 12. And outside of Easter and Christmas and a few Sundays here and there, uh, we've been walking faithfully through this book ever since until this morning. In all, it's taken us about two years to work through this book. I went and counted it up. This is my 64th sermon in the book of Genesis. Matt's preached a couple of them. Tyler and Jonathan have preached one or two here or there. So all together, uh, just shy of 70 sermons, 70 weeks in Genesis. Now, the reason it has taken us so long to walk through the book of Genesis is because I am a really slow reader. That's why it's taken us so long. Now, um, I've worked through this book uh, slowly and methodically because of what we believe about this book. And that is that all Scripture, as Paul says, is God-breathed. That all of God's Word is His very breath. And so it all carries a great deal of meaning and significance and importance and value and I didn't want us to miss, miss anything along the way, though I'm sure reg regretfully we probably have. One of the dangers, or maybe one of the cautions of walking slowly through a lengthy book like Genesis would be, is that we run the risk of missing the proverbial forest for the trees. Have you ever thought about that saying, that proverb, that, that we might miss the forest because of the trees? Imagine that with me for just a moment. Imagine you are in Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska, and you're studying trees, and you're looking at individual trees, and you're, you're seeking to identify them by looking at their leaves and the bark and the fungus that's between the bark, pieces of bark on the tree. And, and you're, you're looking at each individual tree in that way. It is easy to lose sight of where you are. It is easy to lose the perspective that that tree that you're looking at is part, is, is part of a, a field of trees. And that that field is in a vast forest that, that stretches for millions of square miles. Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska is the largest national park in our country. Eight million square miles, larger than nine of our states, and you're standing next to one tree examining its leaves and its bark, it's impossible for you to gain a proper perspective of the immensity of the forest that surrounds you. That's what we run the risk of doing when we dissect a long book like the book of Genesis, focusing each week on just a few verses and walking through them verse by verse, looking at each word. We run the risk of missing the big picture. Now, each week I've tried, I've tried to make sure that we see the big picture, that we see that each verse is a part of a section, and each section is a part of a chapter, each chapter is a part of this book called Genesis, that Genesis itself is part of a larger work called the Pentateuch, and that the Pentateuch is part of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and that they are part of this book that we call our Bible the Holy Bible. I've tried each week to back away to 30,000 feet so that we might see that bigger picture. But that in and of itself is inadequate 
Because then we're only seeing each individual verse within the larger canvas of Scripture. But what about the entire book of Genesis as a whole? And that's what I want us to gain a picture of this morning as we conclude our study of this book. I want us to look at Genesis in its entirety. All 50 verses, all 50 chapters so, so that we can see things like the, the hills and the valleys. We can see the, the clouds of smoke moving in between the mountain ranges. And we can see that the sun, when it rises, doesn't quite reach to the very depths of those valleys. From our perspective, at 30,000 feet, we'll be able to start to see these sorts of things. We'll be able to see the dominant themes that are woven all throughout this book And in recognizing those themes, it will help us to be able to grasp the purpose of this book, why Moses wrote this book in the first place. And until we can grasp the purpose of a book, we're going to be woefully inadequate in really being able to understand its application and meaning to our lives. And so that's what I intend to do this morning. I want us to look at this, all of the the, the book of Genesis, by first reading the last few verses of chapter 50. We've got five more verses to cover. Last week we left off in in chapter 50, verse 21. And so, by God's grace, we've got five more verses to cover this morning. And I want us to use those five verses at the end of chapter 50 as a springboard, as a runway, if you will, to launch us into a flyover over the book of Genesis To get some context, I want us to back up to verse 19, and then we'll read to the end of the chapter, which is the end of the book. Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, to his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children, his child. Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's sons. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are a God who intends to reveal himself to us. And God, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us on the pages of Scripture. You've shown us your character. You've shown us who we are in light of who you are. And Lord, you have revealed yourself as a God who promises mercy to his children. And you have pointed us through this ancient book to the gospel that took place some 15, 1600 years later when you sent your son Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sinners like us so that we might be restored to you. Father, we thank you, God, for how you have providentially preserved this book that we hold in our hands throughout the generations so that we can trust and know that what we hold in our hands is the very breath of our God. So we thank you for it in faith, and we pray that even now, this morning, as we conclude our study of this book, that you breathe through your servant Moses, that you might use it, Father, to 
equip us and encourage us and to challenge us so that we might look more like Jesus and bring you glory with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So these last few verses of chapter 50 that we just read through cover a half a century in the land of Egypt. It's the final 54 years of Joseph's life in Egypt. He was a young man of about 39, 40 years old when God caused him to ascend to the uh, second in command in Egypt. And then his father lived another 17 years in Egypt until his death. That would have made Joseph about 56 years old when his father Jacob died. And then we're told here that Joseph lived until he was 110. And so these verses cover about 54 years. And in these closing verses, Joseph says two things, one at the beginning, one at the end. At the beginning, on the front end, right after his father dies, and his brothers think that Joseph is now going to unleash his vengeance that he's been holding back as long as his father's been alive, they think now he's going to to unleash this vengeance on them for how they treated Joseph when he was a young man in Canaan. And so, in these verses, and what he says there, Joseph reiterates his confidence in God's sovereignty. Look at verse 20. We looked at this last week. As for you, my brothers, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This was Joseph expressing his confidence that God was in control all along. And that when his brothers stripped from him the robe that his father had given him, the robe of many colors, and when his brothers threw him into a pit to presumably leave him for dead, and then when they came back and sold him to slave traders on the way to Egypt, and then went back to their father with the robe dipped in blood, leading him to believe that Joseph, his son, had been devoured by animals. When his brothers did that, Joseph says, that they were doing evil, that they were wrong, that they were sinful in that. But even in those very actions, according to Joseph himself, his testimony was that God was still in control. Even in their wrong and evil actions, God was sovereign even over that. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And this is a theme, this theme of God's sovereignty is a theme that's repeated all throughout this book. On the back end, right before his death, Joseph says in verse 24, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And he will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then in verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel His brothers swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Here, Joseph reminds his brothers in his confidence, of his confidence, not only in God's sovereignty, but in God's promises. His promises of deliverance and blessing to his children. He'll visit you here in this land one day in Egypt. He'll he'll, he'll come to you and he will lead you to another land, a land that he swore and he promised to Abraham, our great-grandfather, to Isaac, our grandfather, to Jacob, our father. God's promises to God's people is also one of the major themes that we see all throughout this book of Genesis. And so that's our, that's our runway this morning, okay? Joseph's confidence in God's sovereignty and in God's promises, that's, that's our runway. And so what I want us to do now is I want us to take off on this runway and do a flyover over the entire book of Genesis. We're actually going to do, do two flyovers this morning. The first is to simply summarize the entire book, all 50 chapters, looking at each section and reminding ourselves of what was happening, the major content in each section. And then we'll do a second flyover to look at the themes that are repeated and dominant throughout the entire book so that we can 
get a grasp of the purpose of the book, okay? So buckle up. You ready? We're hitting the afterburners. We're hitting the runway. Uh, hopeful, hopefully your, uh, your appointments and your, your uh, reservations for lunch can be put on hold because we're going to cover all 50 chapters, okay? We good? Here we go. So the book of Genesis was written by Moses over 3,500 years ago. It was written during the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. You recall, after this story ends, the Israelites, the children of Jacob, stay in Egypt another 430 years in bondage. And then God brings them out of bondage, and they are wandering in the wilderness, a period of some 40 years. And so this book is written by Moses during that time and to those people. There are two major sections of the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters can be seen as the book of beginnings. And then the remaining chapters, chapters 12 through 50, can be seen as the book of the patriarchs. Now each of those sections can be further divided into four books each. First, in the book of beginnings, the first book there is the book of creation. In chapters 1 2 and 3, where God creates everything in creation, including man, and he says, it's all good. But then within that same book, man falls from grace. He sins against God, and the fall of man stains all of creation, including mankind, and now none of it is good, including man. Chapter 4 comprises the book of Adam, which is actually the story of Adam and Eve's sons. First, Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother Abel. Why? Because he has the stain of sin on him as well. And as a result of that stain of sin, he acts out of vengeance, vengeance rage, rage and vengeance, and he murders his brother. And then afterwards, Adam and Eve have a third son whose name is Seth. The third book in this section called The Beginnings of of Genesis is the book of Noah. It's the largest part of this first section of Genesis. It covers chapters 5 through 9. And during this time, in this book, we see mankind fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But as man multiplies, so does the stain of sin. To the point where Moses writes in chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do do you hear the intentional and deliberate hyperbole there? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, mankind had grown desperately sinful and rebellious. And so God determines to blot man from the face of the earth, all except for a man named Noah, who alone was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And God leads Noah to build an ark made of gopher wood. And then he sends rain on the earth. And Noah and his family and the animals alone are rescued from destruction through this ark. The final book of this first section of Genesis is the book of nations in chapters 10 and 11, which is really the the book of the sons of Noah. And here in this book, we see two things primarily. We see, first of all, the table of nations in chapter 10, which is really a genealogy from Noah to Abraham that tells us how the post-flood peoples continue to multiply And then secondly in this book, we see the Tower of Babel, which is how these post-flood peoples are dispersed and are spread throughout the earth. And these first 11 chapters, this book of beginnings as we refer to it, ends with an introduction to a man named Abram, a man who lives in Ur of the Chaldeans. And that's where the second part of Genesis takes over, the book of the patriarchs. The second section of Genesis, which is much larger than the book of beginnings, the first 11 chapters, this one lasts 39 chapters, chapters 12 through 50. And this section also can be divided into four books. And these four books represent the patriarchs 
whose life stories this section of Genesis serves to tell. The first is the book of Abraham, chapter 12 through 20. And the life of Abraham really is central. It's kind of in the middle of the book of Genesis. And God speaks to Abraham and tells him to leave his home and leave all that he knows and go to a land that I will show you. And the land that he ends up showing to Abraham is the land of Canaan, the land of promise. When he gets there, God makes a promise to him. A promise that he will have offspring, many offspring, and that God will promise to him land, this land, the land of Canaan. And so then we're taken on this journey, this this journey of life with Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and they are old. They are advanced in years, and Sarah is barren. She can't have children, and yet God promises that they will have children. And so this journey is a journey of faith where they learn to trust God and his promises. But as they go on this journey, it's it's a journey of faith, but their faith is incomplete as they learn how to trust God and his promises. But the, but the promise from God is not just any old promise. It's a special kind of promise. It's a covenant promise. And so God enters into this covenant with Abraham. Enters into this covenant and over and over again he repeats these covenant promises to Abraham and Sarah. This promise for land and offspring. And that he will cause Abraham to end up being a blessing through him, through his offspring, that he would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And so from the very beginning, this covenant relationship had a global reach from the very beginning. As we said, this journey of faith for Abraham and Sarah was not a smooth journey. It was one of a lot of bumps and hiccups because their faith was weak. Their faith was immature and incomplete and they try all kinds of shortcuts to try to have children but they learn through this that God is sovereign that he is in control and that he is going to keep his promises to them but he's going to do it in his way and is his in his timing and according to his plan and he does he finally gives Abraham and Sarah a son, and his name is Isaac, the child of promise. And that led us to the second book of this section, the book of Isaac. Isaac, although he lives longer than any of the other patriarchs, he takes up, his life story takes up the least amount of real estate in the book of Genesis, just four and a half chapters. In this book, we see Isaac almost get killed. His life almost ends at the hand of his father Abraham, as God instructs Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac as a sign of his trust and faith in God. And at the last moment, Yahweh stays Abraham's hand from sacrificing his son and tells him to remove Isaac from the altar. And he provides a ram in the thicket as a substitute. Hear that. God provides a substitute sacrifice for man. And we saw in that a foreshadowing of Christ whom God has provided for us as a substitute sacrifice for sinners who deserve to be on the altar ourselves. Later, God miraculously provides a wife for Isaac. Abraham sends out one of his most trusted servants to look for a wife for Isaac in the land of Haran, the land of his family's homeland. And there God causes a woman named Rebecca to be in the right place at the right time. And Rebecca agrees to go home with this servant and marry Isaac. Rebecca, like her mother-in-law Sarah, was also barren. But God had promised to her a child as well. And midway through chapter 25, he provides that child. But it's not one, it's two. It's twins. Jacob and Esau. And from the very beginning, they are fighting with one another. They are struggling with one another, even in the womb. But as they are in the womb, God prophesies to Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. The older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. The birth of the twins gives way to book three in this 
patriarch section of Genesis, the book of Jacob, which covers from the midway point of chapter 25 to chapter 36. We recall the story of Jacob more readily because we started walking through the story of Jacob about the same time the pandemic started last spring. Jacob's life, as recorded by Moses, can be divided into three sections. First, his early years. Second, the Laban years, as we call them. And then later, his later years. In the young Jacob years, we watched him first trick his brother into selling him his birthright. And then later, when he's a teenager, we see him outright steal his brother's blessing, the blessing of the firstborn, as he dresses up as Harry Esau and he comes before his blind father and tricks his father, deceives his father into thinking that he is the older son. And Isaac gives him the blessing of the firstborn. Then in the Laban years, we recall how Jacob went back also to his family home in Haran to look for a wife. And he meets up with Rachel, this woman whom he develops an infatuation And so out of that, he agrees to serve Uncle Laban for seven years. Or uncle is Laban, who is the brother of his mother, Rebekah. And so he agrees to serve Uncle Laban for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. But at the end of those seven years, Laban tricks, uh, tricks Jacob and gives him his oldest daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. But... Jacob still loves Rachel and still wants to marry Rachel. And so he agrees to serve Uncle Laban seven more years in order to marry her, which he does. And then they start having babies, and they have a lot of babies. They have 12 sons, and these 12 sons of Jacob, who later, after he wrestles with God on the banks of the Jabbok River, God renames him Israel, and so these 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we pick up his story in the fourth and final book of Genesis in chapter 37. When he's only 17 years old, the story of Joseph is fresh on our minds. We just completed that, and so I'll cover it briefly. Turns out that Joseph is his father's favorite son because he's the eldest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph's brothers are jealous with him because he is his father's favorite. And so they strip the robe of many colors that his father had given to him. And they throw him in this pit to presumably leave him for dead. And then they come back and sell him to slave traders who are on their way down to Egypt. And then they take his robe and they dip it in blood and take it back to the father, leading him to believe that Joseph is dead. And presumably he is, according to Jacob's knowledge, but he isn't dead. Joseph isn't dead. He's very much alive, and he's on his way down to Egypt. When he gets there, he's sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar, who happens to have a very handsy wife, who ends up accusing Joseph of rape when he rebuffs her advances. As a result of that, Joseph is thrown into prison. While he's in prison, providentially, He develops a knack for interpreting dreams. At the same time, providentially, Pharaoh, who is the leader of Egypt, develops a dislike for his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. And so he throws them into prison next to, providentially, this man named Joseph, who's also in jail. While there, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker have dreams, and Joseph rightly interprets them. Later, when Pharaoh himself has a dream that nobody in his kingdom can interpret, the chief cupbearer remembers a Hebrew slave back in prison who rightly interpreted his dream. And so he tells Pharaoh about Joseph, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, which happened to be about a a famine that was coming on the land. And this helps Egypt prepare for this famine, something for which Pharaoh thanks Joseph by putting him in charge of all of the land of Egypt. Meanwhile, this severe famine is also up in the land of Canaan. 
And so providentially, God leads Joseph's brothers and their families to seek refuge in Egypt, where Joseph has been put in charge of everything. And so this ultimately leads to this family reunion, after which the patriarch Jacob finally dies, followed by the death of his son Joseph 54 years later. That is the story of the book of Genesis. Just a quick flyover. For details, see the other 69 sermons. Now, having summarized this book, what's it about? What, what, what is this entire book about? We've, we've looked at each verse. We've looked at each section and, and sought to draw meaning out of each of them. But, but as we look as, at the landscape of this entire vast forest, what is the point? What themes do we see repeated over and over and over again And what does that tell us about the purpose of this book? We've already mentioned two of those themes that we saw in the last five verses of chapter 50. God's sovereignty and God's promises. That God is in control all the time, no matter how bad it gets. That God is still sovereign, that he is still in control, and that God has promised blessing and provision for his children. But what we need to see is that these themes are prevalent not just in the story of Joseph, but all throughout the book of Genesis. God's sovereignty was displayed in the creation story itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see God's sovereignty in the story of Noah and the flood through which God cleanses mankind as well as in the Tower of Babel, through which he disperses mankind all throughout the earth. And then God's sovereignty, of course, was on full display in the life stories of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What about God's promises to his children? Is this only something that we see in the book of patriarchs, beginning with God's promises to Abraham? Or do we also see those promises reflected in the book of beginnings? course you know the answer by now yes of course we see absolutely we see these promises in the first 11 chapters in fact God's promise begins in the very first book the book of creation after Adam and Eve sin against God God pronounces curses on the man on the woman and on the serpent And as he pronounces curse on the serpent, he says to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Bible scholars call this the proto-euangelion, the the, the pre-gospel The gospel before there was a gospel. This itself was a promise from God. God promising that there would come one from the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death for God's children. But the reason there needed to be a promise like this, the reason for this promise, is what gives rise to to three other themes that we see displayed in one way or another on every single page of Scripture. Together, these last three themes comprise what I've often referred to in this study through Genesis as a thread of three strands. The three-stranded thread of God's redemptive plan for sinful humanity. And the three themes which comprise this three-stranded thread of God's redemptive plan for sinful humanity are man's sin, God's judgment, and God's mercy. There are only two chapters in the entire book of Genesis in which we don't see man's sin, chapters 1 and 2. From chapter 3 onward, Every chapter of Genesis displays to us that something is wrong with man. Something's off. Something is awry. Whether it's the sin in the garden, or the sin of Cain killing his brother Abel, or the sin that is rampant with the people of Noah's day. 
We saw sin before the flood, during the flood, and after the flood. We saw sin in Abraham. We saw it in his nephew Lot. And we saw it in Lot's neighbors in the city of Sodom. Sin was on display in Abraham's wife Sarah as she gave her Egyptian servant Hagar to her husband to try to have children through her, to usurp God's plan for the child of promise. We saw sin in their son Isaac, the child of promise, who as a father years later typified passivity when he sat by and allowed his sons Jacob and Esau to get away with treachery and deception. We saw sin in Jacob. We saw it in his uncle Laban. We saw it in Jacob's wives. We saw it in the defilement of Dinah. And we saw it in the, in the sinful and incestuous relationship between Judah and Tamar. And of course, we saw it in Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, when they mistreated him as a young man in Canaan. And from this display of man's sin all throughout the book of Genesis, we learn a very important lesson from Moses, and that is that sin is a global infection that has infected all of humanity. It is a global pandemic that has stained all of humanity. And this is a truth that we would see displayed every day of our lives, first of all, in us but secondarily in the world itself around us. Just this week, as a matter of fact, we saw sin displayed in the form of mob violence. As men and women acted according to their worldly passions and gave full vent to their anger by laying siege to our nation's capital. What we saw on Wednesday of this past week cannot fully be understood outside of an understanding of this truth, that sin is a global infection that has infected all of humanity, that has stained everything in creation, most predominantly us. God's judgment, which is the second thread of this three-stranded thread of God's redemptive plan for sinful humanity, is needed because of man's sin. Because God is holy and righteous, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That would be unjust and therefore outside of his character. And so from the very beginning of sin's presence in the universe, God has been promising judgment. Now, We haven't seen God's judgment as often as some of the other themes that we see in the book of Genesis, and perhaps that by itself is a display of mercy. But we have seen it, and typically when we see it, it's given as a temporary and incomplete judgment that is pointing to a final and complete judgment that is to come. We saw God's judgment in the garden, of course. We we saw it in the flood. The flood was a very clear display of God's judgment of man's unrighteousness, as was his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Abraham and Lot. The message of Genesis is woefully incomplete without an understanding that God must repay sin with justice. And therefore, with judgment and punishment. This is a message that is reinforced for us all throughout the New Testament. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is a global pandemic. It is a global infection that has infected all of us. And therefore, judgment is coming as a result of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, Paul says, what we earn as a result of our sin and rebellion against God, is judgment, punishment, wrath. That's what we deserve. But how does that verse end? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that leads us to the final thread in our thread of three strands, and that is God's mercy. God's mercy. See, this is why we need God's promise of blessing. Because we are sinful 
And because of our sin, we deserve judgment and punishment from God. But God is a God of mercy. And so in the midst of us deserving judgment and deserving that wrath to be poured out on us, he promises mercy. And the promise of mercy is good news for sinners who deserve judgment. We saw God's mercy in that proto-euangelion in Genesis chapter 3, that promise of one who would come from the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death forever for God's children. A redeemer was promised, one who would right these wrongs, who would do what man now couldn't because of sin and death. What a great promise of mercy to come. A redeemer is coming. A rescuer is is coming. We also saw God's mercy displayed in providing Adam and Eve with that third son. Cain couldn't be the child of promise because he killed his brother. Abel couldn't be the child of promise. He was dead. And so God providentially provides a third son, Seth. So that promise of a redeemer continued We also saw God's mercy displayed when he didn't give up on humanity in Noah's day. And instead, he saved a people through the flood and began afresh on the other side of the flood. God's mercy was seen in sparing Lot from the wickedness of Sodom. And in saving Joseph's brothers and family through the famine by providing a a, a means of rescue in Egypt by elevating their brother, whom they had mistreated years ago, to the position of second in command. Though they deserved judgment and punishment, what they received was mercy in being saved through that famine. But God's mercy is most predominantly seen in the book of Genesis in God's covenant promises to Abraham. The promise of offspring and the promise of land was accompanied by a promise that through Abraham, through his offspring, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. How was that to come about? It was to come about by God bringing his son, Jesus Christ, from this people. That he would bring a redeemer, his son Jesus Christ, the the progeny of King David, the the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the God-man Jesus Christ, who, who came from the seed of the woman and crushed the head of the serpent when he died in our place on the cross. Through his righteous life, a righteous life that we could never live, he earned the righteousness that you and I never could and never will earn. And through his righteous life and through his substitutionary death in our place, he paid the price that we deserve to pay because of our sin and rebellion against God. So that all those who would come to him in faith would be forgiven of their sins and reconciled back to God through Jesus. And this good news is for all peoples, for all peoples, all peoples of the earth today are blessed through the offspring of Abraham because of this gospel good news. And so Moses' original audience, the, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness 430 years later, also would have discerned these very same themes from the book of Genesis. God's sovereignty, God's promises, man's sin, God's judgment, God's mercy, They would have seen these on the pages of this book called Genesis. And they would recognize, yes, God is sovereign. He's never left us. Look, the story that we're a part of was planned from the beginning. God didn't leave us and then decide to come back 400 years later. This is all part of his plan. And so we can know as we wander in this desert wilderness, we can know and be confident that God is still in control, that God is sovereign. And they would have gleaned that from these stories, that he was in control no matter how hard it got in the desert. No matter how hard it got when they crossed over the Jordan and began to take possession of the land, no matter how hard it got, they would know that God was in control. They would see from the pages of Genesis that that God's promises of that promised land are still in play. 
They would see a reminder of their own sin as they observed their heroes of the faith, the, the patriarchs, Jacob himself, for whom Israel as a nation was named. And they would see the sin in their lives and they would recognize their own sinfulness and waywardness from God. They would see their sin and the stories of the sins of the people in this book, and they would also see a reminder of God's incomplete judgment in this life, pointing to a complete and final judgment in the next. But mostly, they would have been encouraged by God's promise of mercy and salvation and blessing and deliverance for his children And part of those promises were in their lifetime or or, or in that age. Part of those promises were for this life, particularly the promise of offspring as numerous, numerous as the sands on the seashore of the earth, and as well as the promise of land, the promise of this land that was just across the Jordan River from them. But there remained that promise of a redeemer, a child from the seed of the woman, And the faithful remnant that were a part of Israel would have also been encouraged by that promise of mercy that was yet to come. So what do these five themes of Genesis teach us today? Well, first of all, they remind us that God is in control. Church, Let us not walk away from our study of the book of Genesis without a confident assurance of God's sovereignty, that he is in control. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter what happens tomorrow, please do not deny the fact that God is still on his throne, that he's not taken by surprise by anything that happens. He's not taken by surprise by anything that's happening in your life right now. He is sovereign over it all. And we know from the pages of Scripture that everything that God does, everything that God intends, and everything that God allows, he does so for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and for his glory. Everything that God does, He does for our good, our ultimate and final good, and for his complete glory. God is in control, church. Do not forget that. Do not deny that. And hold firmly with a firm grip to that, no matter what happens in your life. God is sovereign. God is still in control. That's what this book teaches us. But secondly, it reminds us that we are hopelessly stained by sin. And we see that each and every day in our own lives. And we are hopelessly stained by sin. And because of that, we are hopelessly deserving of God's judgment. And that there's nothing that you or I or anyone can do in and of ourselves to escape that judgment. There is nothing we can do. It is hopeless. But we should also be reminded by the promises of mercy in this book, and how God's, God's promise to the serpent that there is coming one who's going to crush you points ahead to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that promise of God's mercy is, is for sinners who embrace the promise of mercy found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is a promise of a Redeemer. And if you're here this morning, and, and, and maybe this is your first time in our study of Genesis, maybe you've been with us all along, but you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from sin and judgment. Maybe, maybe you're still investigating the claims of Christ, or, or maybe you're just trying to be a good Christian that, that hopefully your good would outweigh your sin and your bad and your rebellion. The pages of Scripture are abundantly clear that, friend, that is a hopeless endeavor, that you have no hope of ever achieving righteousness. None of us do. We can never make ourselves righteous before God. That's why God, in His infinite wisdom, planned before the beginning of time to send a Redeemer, to send His Son. And this is what He's planning for on the pages of Genesis as it looks forward to the coming of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas. Will you 
put away your meager efforts at earning God's favor and trust in Christ alone to forgive you and trust in his finished work as your only hope for rescue from what you deserve. He will give you new life. He will make you one of his children. He will rescue you from what you deserve. And he will be with you until he comes to take you home. I beg of you, if that describes you, be reconciled to God through Christ. And if you have, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if God has ushered you across the line of faith, then look at the pages of Scripture and thank God that he is faithful. That the same God who kept every single one of his promises in this book is the same God that we know and love and serve today. And he will keep his promises to us. His promises to never leave us, to never forsake us, to always work things out for our good and his glory, to persevere us to the end. And one day, at the end of this short life, to bring us into his presence. He is a God, we learn, that keeps his promises and he will keep that promise to you and I who are his by faith. May we learn this and may we thank God for this book and thank him for the truths that we learn about him and thank him that he is a God who intends to reveal himself He he revealed himself, right, on the pages of Scripture. He revealed who we are in light of that. And he told us that though we are sinful, he is faithful. He is a faithful God. He is a faithful God. He is a faithful God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are absolutely astounded that in light of our rebellion, in light of our sin. You you knew the sins that we would commit yesterday, today, and tomorrow. When you planned this from the beginning of time, your incredible, global plan of redemption to redeem sinners like me, in that moment you knew what a sinner I would be. Oh God, I'm so thankful for your grace and your mercy shown to me, shown to my brothers and sisters here. And God, I ask that in your, in your perfect plan that you would show that same grace and mercy to those among us who have not professed faith in you. We ask that just in the quietness of, a, of their heart, Father, that you would show them what a dead end it is to try to achieve your favor through works. And then in the hopelessness of that, reveal to them the glory of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, and the hope of grace that is found in Calvary. Lead them across that line of faith right now to trust in Jesus as their only hope. God, as those whom you have saved by grace through faith, we thank you so much for this book. And we thank you for what we learn about ourselves and our own sinfulness and our own deserving of judgment and wrath. And we're thankful, Father, for what it reveals of your character, that you are faithful. We thank you for your faithfulness. Help us to keep trusting that. And may these truths from this this book, Lord, equip us and prepare us for a life of faithfulness until you bring us home. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.